friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to the thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great show lined up for you today on Conversations with Consequences. We're going to talk to Jeannie Allen of the Center for Education Reform about the impending closure of many Catholic parochial schools and what that means for our nation, the closure because of the pandemic of coronavirus, of course, and the subsequent lockdowns. For that part of the show, I'll be joined my, by my TCA colleague and good friend, Maureen Ferguson. Before that, however, we're going to talk about the subject of surrogacy. You may have seen in the news that the journalist Anderson Cooper just became a father through surrogacy, through renting a woman's womb. Also a story out of the Ukraine you might have seen about babies stranded there after being commissioned by Western parents. We're going to talk first with my dear friend, Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan, about the actual process of surrogacy. And then we'll have Jennifer Lal of the Center for Bioethics and Culture to discuss recent changes in laws of New York and other states allowing for commercial surrogacy in our own country. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Dr. O'Sullivan. Thank you, Christine. It's nice to be on the phone with you. Yeah, so the issue that we would like to talk about with you, Dr. O, is the fact that during the pandemic, we saw these really sad images of these babies that are stranded in Kiev in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And these babies were commissioned by parents all over the world, I think, of Latin America, Europe, the United States. They were commissioned to be created via surrogacy, and they were implanted into women in the Ukraine who are paid an average of about $12,000 to bring these children through the pregnancy and deliver them to their biologic parents. These babies were created in in vitro situations, so they're created in a lab. These women gave birth and the babies were unable to be picked up by their parents because of the travel restrictions. So we saw these really uh, interesting images of these babies being cared for in a big hotel in Kiev while the parents, and these babies uh, up to now, many of them are still stranded because people haven't been able to travel. And you know, Christine, I want to... Um, make a point. Only God creates. The lab manipulates. Mm-hmm. That's very so true. So really, really, the lab is not creating the baby when it fertilizes the ovum with the male sperm. It manipulates the manufacturer, quote unquote, in a lab mm-hmm. of that baby. And what is totally eliminated from all of this is the act of love or the true act of conjugal love that creates really creates a baby so this is taken away from all of that and it's just um, done in a lab and the lab people decide what is looks good and what should be essentially abandoned or killed right so the 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 components of a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a terrible mm-hmm. way to think about this it is extracted. i mean t- we're talking it's like a machine it's like manufacturing <laughs> right yeah. and like yeah. you say, and as you say it removes the act of love from the exactly. act of creation that god and mm-hmm. so a mother and a father in, in effect co-create with god and, right. and in this love that they have for each other this love is fruitful it's creative with god and it and it makes the object of the parents love 
Once these embryos are created in the laboratory, what happens next? Well, first of all, the gestational mother has already been prepared with doses, fairly large doses of progesterone, so that the lining of her uterus would be the same as if she spontaneously ovulated and got pregnant. Mm -hmm. So once that lining is properly prepared, then the embryo or embryos that they inject more than one are uh, injected transcervically into the uterine cavity so that they will implant in the, how will I say, progestationally prepared endometrium, which is done chemically instead of spontaneously as it would have been if she ovulated on her own. As Catholics, we believe that every time an embryo comes into existence, that's a human being because that obviously, unless something stops, that embryo will develop into a child. It's it's a child of God, even at the embryonic stage. So in mm-hmm. these situations, many embryos, I believe, are created. Uh, some yes. of these embryos are chosen as the strongest, best-looking embryos, and those are the ones implanted. I suppose the rest are generally discarded or maybe mm-hmm. fro- frozen for later use, for possible later use. Then these embryos are, are implanted in the gestational mother, sometimes three or four. So that's a very difficult thing, right? To, to bring four, three or four babies safely through a pregnancy is very difficult. So what happens many times during these pregnancies? Well, the mother, the real mother of that baby, the parents of that baby, have to make the decision whether they're going to actually allow for what we call reduction. That is, they kill one, two, or three of those embryos that are now more like um, developed and they know that they've taken. That is, that they know that they have three or more than one, put it this way. They know that they have more than one living child inside that uterus. They then have to make up the decision or make up their mind. Are they willing to accept two or three or four? And for the mom, the gestational mom, that certainly is increasing the risks to her of the pregnancy. And it's also increasing the risks if they decide to keep them all, then the risk of uh, prematurity and so, preeclampsia and other things. What I read when I was studying up on this topic is that in the contract, it's up to the parent, in many contracts, because every situation can have a slightly different legal approach. But in these contracts, it's up to the commissioning parents to Mm -hmm. decide whether the mother, the gestational mother, has an abortion, a partial abortion of some of these children. It's not up to her, and she accepts a certain amount of risk. So then if the woman goes ahead and the pregnancy goes ahead, there are significant risks associated, and I'd love to hear about this from you, Dr. O, about with associated with in vitro uh, fertilization in general and and placement of embryos in in women, but even more so when a woman who's not biologically related to those embryos is implanted with, with the babies. Well, she, since she's not biologically related, uh, you know, her immune system and the baby's immune system is different. Now, I realize that there is a difference between the immune systems of the mother, the genetic mother, and the who carries her own baby. But there's also characteristics of the two of them that are very similar. And those allow for some protection, both of the mother and of the baby, i.e., that is, the mother does not reject the baby, even though the baby has uh, genetic material from its father, which is foreign to her. Mm -hmm. But because that baby has genetic material that is similar to her, then she does not reject that pregnancy. She's protected. The baby is protected. When it comes to the gestational mother, she shares no genetic information of the child she is carrying. And therefore, there's a greater risk of some of some complications of pregnancy, which uh, are seem to be immunologically in some way or another related. For example, 
preeclampsia. There's a higher incidence of preeclampsia in women who are carrying a baby that is not their own genetic material. There's an increased risk of preterm delivery. There's an increased risk of abnormal placentation. So there are other risks. You know, the one thing we don't know about any of this is the long-term risks. That is, after the pregnancy is over with, 10, 15, 20 years later, what are the effects to that mother? If a mom has hypertension during pregnancy or preeclampsia and she recovers perfectly fine from that episode, she herself is at long-term risk for the development of hypertension, of chronic hypertension. And that's a genetically related mother. So we don't know for these gestational surrogacies whether these women are also at increased risk long-term. This is Conversations with Consequences, and we're talking to Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan. She's retired now, but she's an OBGYN who was the head of maternal fetal medicine at the University of Miami. So women who are impoverished in the case of Ukraine but, and, or, or even here in the United States where commercial surrogacy is legal in most states and women, young women do this for money because they have need, they are risking their physical health in ways that they, we don't even understand that in the long term. People nowadays, uh, Dr. O, believe, they're pretty sure that pregnancy is so safe. You know, most of us don't know women who have died during pregnancy mm-hmm. and delivery, but I'm sure you could tell us that this is still something that happens. Women still lose their lives during a pregnancy. Oh, sure. There's a great effort in the United States now to really uh, thoroughly investigate maternal mortality to try to decrease, actually, the mortality, maternal mortality rate in the United States, which has increased. So women who go into the business of surrogacy, they are taking uh, great material risks with their lives. What about emotional risk? Do you think that a gestational mother, even though she's not biologically related to the child, makes those those connections? I can't imagine how it would not be so. Because she's the one that's carried that baby for those nine months. She's felt that baby every day once the baby starts moving. She's the one that's get the prenatal care. She's the one that sees the ultrasounds. Yeah, the real mother does too, but she's seeing that baby inside of her. And we don't know because there's no studies that tell us that kind of information. But I cannot imagine carrying a baby for nine months and even if it's not your own and now you're going to give it up to its gestational mother. There has to be similarities between that woman giving the baby and a woman who gives her baby up for adoption. I read that some women who go through surrogacy experience post-traumatic stress disorder and that achieving their pre-surrogacy mental health uh, is very difficult. Going back to the days before, they they raised a child in their womb and then gave that child away. And I can, I can completely imagine that. Oh, sure. And I mean, she has to be wondering what happened. She knows it's not her baby, but at the same time, what happened to that baby I carried? How is that baby doing? If the parents keep in touch, at least she's got some... Uh, background but from the one experience i've had the parents once that baby is given to them that's it they don't they want to cut everything in a sense they've hired a uterus to be a home for their child for nine months Mm -hmm. and then they walk away and there's there's there are very strong similarities between this kind of exploitation i think of women and human slavery modern human slavery do you see those connections when you think about surrogacy I, I would say one could interpret it that way, yes. I'm, I'm not sure I see it that way 
completely. But I do know, for example, that there are women in India who are ter- or who are impoverished and who do this to help their families to raise their own children. Uh, and these women, um, certainly their health status, uh, yes, they do investigate them. And yes, they, get, they try to get them in the best health status before they do the surrogacy. But they've had chronic health problems. And we don't know what all that's going to mean long term either to mother or the future of that baby. The other thing is that the lawyers are involved with all of this and the parents, they have to really come to an agreement with that mother, that surrogacy mother or gestational mother, I should use a little term, as to what the future is going to hold with her contact, etc. And that's something that has to be settled from a legal perspective between the lawyers, the gestational mother and the real parents. Do you think as Catholics or Christians, surrogacy can be, because of the pain of infertility, infertility is a real grief from many oh, yeah. people. And uh-huh. I don't want to I don't want to minimize minimize that in any way shape or form. It's a very sad thing. But do you think as Christians or Catholics we can square surrogacy with what we know about the human person? I don't think so. Even if we're not deep thinkers or if we read the theology of the body from Pope John Paul II, it does seem to me to be a great manipulation of a beautiful natural process. Oh, it is a manipulation and it's it's I mean figure realize before in vitro fertilization, this concept of solving infertility was inaccessible to anybody. Okay? There was no such thing as women who had infertility. They would try and do everything doctors with their knowledge then would try to do everything they can. But because babies are no longer available for adoption, then this becomes the option. And it's true that there are, I mean, there are some people who will not allow adoption in their into their lives. They're not open-minded to it. They're afraid. It's not theirs. You know, that all of that. But that baby becomes yours. Once adopted, it becomes yours. And you feel for it the same as you would if you carried it in utero, having missed that nine months of pregnancy. You do learn that. Yes, I agree. Infertility is a terrible, terrible tragedy. But God did not design all women to have a baby, mm-hmm. even in the in the even in the marital situation. He did not mean that all just because you look at. True, he there were barren women in the Old Testament. True, he he eventually allowed a lot of these women to become pregnant, but not all. And this is one of those crosses of life that has to be carried by that woman who has, and that couple who are infertile. Dr. O, when I, when my husband and I adopted our fifth child, what you say is so true. We had to learn to love her, but once we went through that beautiful process of getting to know her, she became part of our of our souls, of our flesh, sure. just like our biological children. And I, mm-hmm. I can assure anyone who's listening that the process is a very beautiful one and it's it's just as powerful as giving birth because I've experienced both things. Now, right. Dr. O, there's, there is, when you and I are talking about surrogacy, we're sort of assuming that we're talking about a physical infertility. Infertility related to two people who are married, a man and a woman who are married and trying to get pregnant and they're within their fertile years and it's not possible. But we also know that infertility is is becoming uh, something that we call now social infertility. So maybe two women who want to have a baby together. (laughs) Or two men. So this in the last few weeks, Anderson Cooper. Newscaster. Newscaster. Thank you for the word. Uh, The newscaster, he, uh, he just commissioned a baby from a surrogate and now he has a baby he and Mm -hmm. and, um, his male uh, partner have a child 
So we're seeing this idea of infertility being this terrible, sad thing for couples, for traditional, normal couples. And now we're seeing it expanded to basically anyone who feels that they ought to have a child, even though their lives are not set up in such a way that that could happen naturally. And that's not ever what they intended. This is even, to me, this seems an even greater uh, offense when you start talking about simply seeing the child as a commodity that you are able to, that that everyone deserves to have. Does that strike you the same way? Exactly. And it's a violation of God's law. If God wanted two men to have a baby, he'd have allowed them to have that. If God wanted two women to have a baby naturally, he would have allowed that to happen. That is not what God intended. He created a man and a woman to procreate as a man and a woman naturally procreate, not to manufacture procreation, but as they are supposed to procreate. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is. It's a, a definite violation of natural law, of natural events. It's a definite violation of God's law. And it's really the manipulation of the human being to get what I want when I wanted how I wanted. Mm-hmm. And forgetting that uh, sorry, but you weren't created that way. And also, we didn't necessarily set up our lives that way, right? I mean, I, when you think when we think about infertility, one of the problems that uh, happen these days is that women put off childbearing, marriage, and childbearing to later later in their lives, mm-hmm. and infertility is is a natural. It's very natural to become infertile. (laughs) As as you age, you are less fertile. Yes. Women are less fertile as they age. No question about it. And one day they're not fertile at all. That's right. (laughs) And there's no going back without extreme manipulation of the sort that we're talking about. Well, thank mm-hmm. you, Doctor O. It's been so good to talk to you about this. It's a it's a difficult topic, but you make very it very difficult. And I, I really, you know, I, I think that our listeners should be well aware that when discussing this, it's not that we don't feel empathy for the women, for the people who have infertility. We do feel empathy. God feels empathy, but God has a reason why He does what He does, and it is not for us to manipulate against what he reasons and i hope people understand that you know and 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 i i know it's not going to give them peace necessarily um and i know in our world today where we feel that we have the right to everything we want uh and we can do with our bodies what we want sorry your bodies were a gift to you and they're only a gift and you have to give them back Well, those are the perfect words to end on, Dr. O. So thank you so much for joining us again on Conversations with Consequences. Okay, Dr. Christie, God bless you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Joining us now is Jennifer Lal. She's with the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Jennifer, welcome to Conversations with Consequences. Thank you. It's good to be with you this morning. So, Jennifer, you recently penned a piece in First Things, the publication, on the topic of surrogacy, and you called it very much what it is, which is babies for sale. Can you tell us about what happened in New York amid the coronavirus backdrop that you referred to in your piece? Yeah. So I've been very involved in um, opposing and speaking out against surrogacy and especially at the legislative level. And for several years in a row, we've been very active in New York opposing a piece of legislation that would legalize commercial surrogacy, which is the buying and selling of children and the renting of women's wombs. 
Um, up until this past year, we were very successful in not allowing that legislation to move forward. But in the midst of a you know a global pandemic and the really grave situation in New York, um, Governor Cuomo um, added this piece of legislation within his state budget, which had to be passed by a particular deadline per their state constitution. So without any um, public deliberation, without any testimony, without any hearings, <coughs> He was successful in legalizing the buying and selling of children in New York State. And how many states, Jennifer, allow commercial surrogacy? Do you know that number? Yeah, I don't, you know, it's really hard to give you an answer to that because um, it is a patchwork um, Mm -hmm. across the United States. So, for example... And Texas allows commercial surrogacy, the buying and selling of children, but it only allows it for heterosexual married couples, which is different than my state, California, where I live, which allows, you know, babies to be bought and sold to single people, to same sex people, to married people that don't even have infertility issues. So it really depends on each particular state, what the the details of the law are. But, you know, it is moving in that direction that more and more states are legalizing the buying and selling of children. But are there states that allow uh, altruistic surrogacy but not commercial? I tried, you know, I'm asking you these questions because I went online and I tried to figure this out. And it's so complicated because, as you say, it's sort of being it's being done in a strange step by step way in different states. Yeah, there's no state that I'm aware of. Um, I'd have to go back and check. We have a map on our website that has each 50 states, and because it is constantly changing, mm-hmm. um, there's you know New York State before Governor Cuomo acted, that state allowed altruistic surrogacy. N- uh, New Jersey um, a few years ago, Governor Murphy legalized commercial surrogacy. Before that, altruistic surrogacy was allowed. Um, the push to being able to pay women to do this is because women aren't naturally inclined to be pregnant for nine months without any kind of monetary compensation. So the argument goes, women aren't lining up to help people, help in quotes, have a baby, um, unless they can be paid. And for me as a nurse, in my earlier life, I worked in nursing, you know, um, we don't allow organ donors to be paid. Mm -hmm. And there's very particular reasons, important, good reasons why we don't allow the buying and selling of organs. And so it's it's disappointing to me that at least in the United States, we don't allow that kind of policy and organ donation to transfer to this space. Now, I oppose altruistic surrogacy, too, um, for various reasons. But um, that's the sort of the political reality that we face today in the United States. Jennifer, before you came on, we had a long discussion with a doctor, an OBGYN, and we talked about the different reasons why surrogacy is very dangerous for the mother both physical, her physical health and her emotional health, both. And uh, I think that's pretty clear now, having heard all that. Uh, So why do you think that surrogacy, which is dangerous, is allowed uh, commercially, but not the selling of organs? Because presumably people aren't allowed to just sell their organs because it's a dangerous thing to be selling your kidneys and you shouldn't be pressured into that by money concerns. Yeah, I mean, literally by the time we finish this interview, this very short interview, somebody in the United States will have died um, waiting on a list for an organ transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we're, literally life hangs in the balance, we say, no, we're not going to allow the buying and selling of organs. I think um, people get very weak in the knees when it comes to um, infertility. Um, all of us know somebody who would probably make amazing parents that for whatever um, you know, myriad reasons, they're not able to conceive um 
And, you know, when you see lawmakers, lawmakers like to say yes to people. And I testify um, in many, many state hearings and the infertile couples come in and they have terribly sad stories. Um, surrogate mothers come in talking about how wonderful it was to give the gift of life and to be able to bless this family with a child. Um, and I just think it's really hard for people to get past what I call sort of the Hallmark card sentiments. Um, and to dig deep into the, the real serious medical risk, the psychological risk, the risk to the children. Um, this is dangerous and unhealthy and unsafe for the children that are created this way um, because we want people to be able to have families. Jennifer, the, really the only way for, the only way I can think of anyway, for um, a male homosexual same-sex couple, for them to reproduce using their own sperm is to rent the use of a woman's body. Do you think that this uh, acceptance of surrogacy uh, is being sped along its way by the the general desire to, to make sure that same-sex couples are able to create families, even though this is artific artificially and through a kind of human trafficking? Yeah, and I would add one extra important um, point that most people don't realize. Uh, a same-sex male couple overwhelmingly uses eggs from one woman, so they are exploiting one woman for her eggs, and they rent the uterus of another woman, so they're exploiting another woman for her womb. So they're actually exploiting two women in order hmm. for them to conceive. Is that and because, I'm sorry, is that because they shop around for the best eggs and that might not be the best womb? And also, they don't want the woman to be able to have claim any rights. Oh, okay. She will just she will just be the incubator. She will not be the genetic biological mother. So, if this woman bonds to that child in utero, it gives her less standing, if you will, if she wants to make any kind of legal maternal rights to the child because there's no biological connection. So, part of that's just an an intentional making sure that this woman can't. Um, you know, go to court and say, I just, I changed my mind. I want to keep my child because the courts will say, no, this is not your child. It just stated in your womb. But legislatively, um, the LGBT lobby has really forced this as an equality issue. So we're seeing, you know, what happened in New York was led championed by a, a gay senator in the state of New York who has children through commercial surrogacy. Um, the same thing happened in Washington state, the, the legislation that legalized commercial surrogacy surrogacy there was championed by a gay senator who has children through surrogacy. Both of these senators had to come to my state, which are, is a surrogacy-friendly state, I call it that, um, in order to, to have surrogates and surrogate pregnancies. So, you know, their argument is, why do we have to travel out of state? Why can't we stay here? We have, we have the ability to marry, to fall in love and get married, and now we want children. This is just an extension of equality. Oh, wow, that's uh, sort of diabolic when you <laughs> when you explain about the the egg and the renting of the wombs. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for uh, sharing all these things with us, and I hope that our listeners will um, look more into it and see what's up in their state and maybe help push back the tide of surrogacy. Well, we would appreciate any help. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up next, we talk to Jeannie Allen. Stay tuned to EWTN Radio. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, my good friend and TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson has joined me, and we have asked Jeannie Allen of the Center for Education Reform to talk with us. She is the author of a new book on education called An Unfinished Journey, Education and the American Dream. Jeannie is considered one of the most accomplished and relentless advocates for education reform, and we've asked her to come and talk to us about the shocking number of Catholic schools that are in danger of closing due to the coronavirus pandemic and then the lockdown, as well as to look at a big Supreme Court case that could impact private schools nationwide. Welcome to the show, Jeannie, and thank you so much for giving us a portion of your time. Thank you so much, Gracie. My pleasure. I've read this number, and I, it's hard for me to imagine the impact of this, that over 100 Catholic schools may simply not open back up in the fall after this lockdown is over. And added to the many tragedies of the pandemic and the economic devastation of the lockdown, I think this uh, is another huge tragic result. The National Catholic Education Association says that it's mostly because of uncertainty, but what other factors are at play here? It really is shocking, and it's a tragedy, and we have to do something about it. I mean, obviously, it's the economy. A lot of parents, we've heard this from a number of dioceses. We've heard Cardinal Dolan talk about it. We've heard superintendents of school. A lot of parents are just saying, if I'm going to be home, and I'm not sure if I'm going back to school, how can I make, how can I make this commitment, this mm-hmm. financial commitment? Many of these families who benefit in urban areas are heavily scholarshiped. Uh, but they're also supporting their own Catholic education. And the Catholic schools themselves have not gotten their fair share of support from the federal government that has gone to just about everybody else to help mitigate these challenges during COVID. So that's part of it and part of what many Catholic leaders and school leaders are fighting for. So really, Jeannie, it it sounds like Catholic schools have taken a triple hit because, of course, the parishes have been closed. So they can't they haven't had their weekly collection plate and they can't afford to continue to subsidize the schools. Of course, all the schools had to cancel their fundraisers and then parents have lost jobs and can't pay the tuitions. So you were alluding to this. But so when the government shut down the schools, they closed both public and private schools. So isn't it only fair then that in the government response to the pandemic that they include both public and private schools in these congressional relief bills? Absolutely. They did worry and they closed them down. They closed down businesses and therefore they're helping support businesses in some ways. They closed down the economy. And so taxpayers, even by the way, taxpayers who happen to be Catholic are getting checks. So the notion that they would be saying, we can't give you that money at the congressional level, right? So there's two levels that we need to kind of dissect. One level is the congressional level with the next set of stimulus funds that are coming. And there has been literally a multi-million dollar fight waged on the part of people who believe that 
funds should only uh, get distributed to public education, the unions and, and whatnot, the teachers unions. And that's where the next round of potential income was hoping to come from. We were hoping to come from. And now that a lot of Catholic schools are looking at probably not seeing those funds, they're saying, well, how much longer can we keep open if we're not going to be getting income in the door? The second place is this notion, fair funds that have already been distributed under the CARES Act that were supposed to also be going from districts directly to Catholic schools. In some cases, that has happened. In other cases, it's not been fair. And I have been really dismayed and kind of surprised that more Catholic leaders in the church and in our schools aren't saying that and haven't been making, frankly, much more noise about it. And I think it's time that they begin. Watching what's going on across the country, basically race riots <laughs> in so many of our cities, it occurs to me that people are not paying attention to the fact, the very important fact, that Catholic schools serve minority students to a huge extent and do fabulous things for them. I myself came to the United States as a 12 or 13 year old and had a got a great education in Catholic schools for a very affordable price. I know that the Catholic schools are lifting minority students out of useless public schools or worse than useless, dangerous public schools where they're that are dead ends for for minorities. So why are people missing that connection between the good of minorities and Catholic schools? Yeah, and, and let me also preface this by saying, Chrissy, that I'm not being critical of leadership just to be critical. Mm-hmm not great advocates for their own cause sometimes because they're busy. They're focused on the work. And so I understand. They don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm in the politics. And <laughs> sure. there are groups that do that. So I'm kind of egging them on and also inviting as well as encouraging. I don't believe in the same way that Catholic schools are used to being great ambassadors for their own cause, that they're used to bragging about it. So for example, I had Paula Scala, who himself is a Latino raised by a single parent family, I believe, in Los Angeles, whose Catholic school changed his life. And he went on to lead public charter and now the Los Angeles Diocese. Wow. And well over half and more than 60% of his students are low income minority. And the numbers and the record of graduation, of achievement, of persistence, persistence is a big, you know, that's a big deal for us. And so that is, um, he's talking about those numbers and they surprise people. So I think we just have a better do a job, better, do a better job of making sure people understand that that is exactly what those schools do. It's so true. And so many people just don't realize that Catholic school students across the board are far more academically successful than their public school peers. I believe about 99% of Catholic school students graduate from high school on time and about 86% go on to college. So why do you think this is, Jeannie? What's the magic sauce that Catholic schools have? Because we know that they do a better job, a much better job of closing that achievement gap and particularly in these inner city schools where the neighborhood schools are just awful. So there's actually great research, Maureen, to back this up from years and years. And it comes down to basically three things. One is flexibility and independence to tailor the education to the needs of kids. You couple that with the expectations that they were the first no excuses schools, right? They were the first schools to say, we believe every child can learn 
that we are going to be Catholic with a small C and build a community and respect that and make sure everybody's potential is recognized and happen to do it with both moral as well as sort of equitable distribution expectations. And the third is leadership. If you don't have leadership, you can't make changes in schools. And leadership coupled with that sense of Catholicism, coupled with that flexibility, is what is the magic in businesses. It's the magic in any great school. And the public schools are schools that are famous for their lack of flexibility, aren't they? For instance, in their staff, uh, teachers at public schools seem to stay on forever, whether or not they are effective or even if they're uh, dangerous. And Catholic schools don't have those. They're not beholden to teachers' unions, for instance. Does that make a huge difference in the schooling? It really does. And no one's in charge, right? You have many, many, many people Mm. who supposedly are co-responsible for rules and regulations. But the focus in a traditional public school system is on compliance. It's not on outcomes. And they think everyone should be treated differently. There is that soft bigotry of low expectations that uh, President Bush once talked about that's at play, which is not the case in Catholic schools. I have to tell you, as a, as a minority student in a Catholic school, young a young girl, I was treated I, as though I could learn. I could learn the language. I could I could excel. And those expectations, high expectations for me, resulted in, in higher achievement. I'm sure of that. I can't imagine what my life would have been like in a public school where I was consigned to just sort of getting by. And I know that happens a lot a lot to minority and, and immigrant students. But Catholic schools, they form students academically, but also in human and spiritual values, like patriotism, respect for authority, charity for one's neighbor, even when we disagree with them. And uh, I, as we watch our country torn apart by hate and resentment in these last weeks, and even subjected to violent anarchy, it seems to me that those values of a Catholic school education would be wonderful if applied across all of instruction across the country. It really is what makes this moment so tragic and so disappointing because you're absolutely right. Parents right now are looking for some stability in their children's lives. And what a better place to have it in schools. Oh, by the way, those secondary factors that are smaller, more community-driven, where parents have made a choice to send their students there. They are more diverse, both income-wise and racially, in the communities where they serve. What a better place to send your children back after all this is happening. And so I will say that there's the potential, I still think, that there's ways to actually keep these schools open and alive while we work through all of these financial and legal challenges. I know we'll talk about constitutionality in a second, because if we don't have those schools open, then we won't be able to provide that stability, that demand, and that need that we now have amidst people toppling statues and removing people like Father Sarah from the public uh, realm. And that debate, by the way, that rigorous debate also happens in Catholic schools, much more so than traditional public. Mm -hmm. So, So Jeannie, with all of your wealth of knowledge and expertise, what can we do and what can thousands of Catholic parents who are listening on EWTN radio, what can we do to help protect our educational, our Catholic educational institutions? And I know that advocacy organizations organizations are asking Congress to create, in in addition to these emergency funds and the COVID relief bills, but to create, finally, a federal tax credit for tuition scholarships. Yeah, every parent, grandparent, anyone affiliated with a student Catholic school needs to tell their leadership in Congress that they support these schools, that these schools are life-changing, and they should look at them as public servants 
not religious institutions. That's the reality. And they just need to be noisier. They also need to be looking at what happens when hopefully in the next seven to 10 days by the end of June, the Blaine decision, the Blaine Amendment decision, which has been considered the Supreme Court, which has been an impediment to educational freedom in 37 states could very well be thrown out or at least the doors opened for states to be able to enact legislation that would allow parents to use public tax dollars to follow their kids to choice. That's something that they can work on in states and be ready to act in states. And so they have to be informed about that, Maureen. But I'd say right now in time, here's what they can do that is dependent on they and they alone. They need to say to their diocese and their principals, we can stay open. We can put kids on Online. There are programs, both companies as well as Catholic-affiliated companies, that can help reduce the costs of labor, help your kids have a blended, interactive, one-on-one, face-to-face education without having to be in a building that's worthy of paying for, even if it's not as much money coming in, just to keep the doors open until we can all be in buildings again together, like we were. It's called innovation. And we've written about this before. I've talked about this. I adore my Catholic colleagues and friends in the school world, but they don't think through how many education technologies are available to streamline their costs and to help them deliver a great education no matter where their kids are. I think if we did that, we could keep schools open while we're waiting for decisions to come down, while we're waiting for Congress to listen to our people. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're talking to Jeannie Allen. She's the powerhouse behind Center for Education Reform. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, with Maureen Ferguson from the Catholic Association. So Jeannie, you make a really good point about innovation and thinking outside the box. And I think that that's a very important thing to for us as parishioners, as I'm a parent of a Catholic school student. You are too, right, Maureen? Yes, I have a in Catholic schools. I'm a member, I'm actually the vice president of the Parent Teacher Association at our local parochial school. I've been a mom there for 23 years, if you can believe it, nonstop. And, but yes, I do agree that it's hard for our small parochial school administration and teachers to think outside the box. They're so busy and they don't have these huge networks of support that our public school administration has. So that's a really wonderful idea. Now, Jeannie, while we have you, we want to talk about something you already mentioned. You mentioned the Blaine Amendment. But maybe you could explain to our listeners about what's happening at the Supreme Court uh, in the case of Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. What's it about and what can they expect, hopefully? So parents sued the state of Montana because their kids, low-income kids, had scholarships from a program that the state enacted. And the program was challenged on the basis of this amendment that's in the Montana Constitution saying we're not allowed, you're not allowed to use public funds for private education, religious education in particular. There was a back and forth and eventually they were denied that right. They sued and the Supreme Court took the case. It was argued in January, and a decision is expected by the end of June. The Blaine Amendment is named after a gentleman, which it's just so funny to think about this, a bigoted gentleman named James G. Blaine, who was a Republican (laughs) in the 1850s. We need to take down his statue. (laughs) 
I stole you. Exactly. Where is he? The picture's probably in the Capitol. Um, you should find him. And he was he was goaded on by the Know Nothing Party, who was very afraid that the Catholic hierarchy was taking over and educating these poor, ugly Irish immigrants. And I say it that way because that's what they said. Ugh. There were these, sorry, Maureen, but all of these Irish immigrants coming over who wanted to go to the churches and churches were beginning to teach them. And James D. Blaine was part of a group of people who said, we need to put them in public schools. By the way, they weren't public. They were Protestant schools. So it really wasn't about religion. It was about the Catholic religion. He failed in Congress, and but his, he created a mob mentality against Catholic education that we would create a bunch of sycophant people walking around that weren't school and weren't educated and followed blindly this church that worships people like Mary. And so eventually the states picked it up and the states started passing it. State by state, 37 states put it in their constitutions. And it is what has prevented or been an excuse not always prevented, but been an excuse for legislators to allow parents to have vouchers. Well, so Jeannie, you referred to my Irish name and my father was in fact one of those immigrants from one of those Irish immigrant families in New York City who went to Good Shepherd Catholic School coming, you know, his parents had only a second grade education in Ireland. You know, they had blue collar jobs here in New York City, but my dad was very bright, went to Good Shepherd Catholic School, and then they took the brightest kids from there and sent them to Manhattan Prep, and from there he went on to Georgetown University. So these Catholic schools are truly part of the American dream. But so what would a favorable mean? Uh, a favorable ruling mean for Catholic schools in terms of educational opportunities. And I know we're on the verge of hearing this ruling from the Supreme Court and the timing is so fascinating because this is just the time that President Trump keeps pressing Congress for these federal tax credits. So can you explain how all that might play out for us? The ruling, if it is favorable to the parents and to and against Blaine, could be narrow, could be broad, but essentially it would allow states to take the Blaine Amendment off the books. It would either require an, a, an advisory opinion at the attorney general level in a state or potentially legislation, but it no longer is the constitutional barrier. And so when something's within our hands democratically, it's much more likely to happen. So that means that we could enact an educational choice program in the states where Blaine is, whether that's Montana or Michigan or New York and allow monies to follow children to the school of choice, which I think armed with that data and armed with that knowledge would allow parents who are just like your dad's parents would immediately want to engage in that fight. The fight's really difficult when you go to legislatures now and they say it's unconstitutional, my hands are tied. When we no no longer have that excuse. So we either can get it done now or we can elect people who want to. And that goes back to the power of voice and the power of these families who so many of us were touched by so long. We have an army of people out there that if organized could make a huge difference and probably be much more forceful and correct than the National Education Association. It sounds to me like 
like our all of us and our listeners should be praying for a good outcome on this uh, Espinosa case out of the Supreme Court and then for the will at each state capital to make it possible for kids to receive vouchers for their amazing Catholic school educations that's saving them from a horrible public school down the street in many, many cases, too many cases. So Jeannie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and thank you for all you do to advance real educational opportunities for children across the country. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you, Maureen, so much for the opportunity. To learn more about Jeannie Allen, please visit edreform.com. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. There are two essential aspects of our Christian life, discipleship and apostolate. On the one hand, our following Jesus, and the other, our proclaiming Him. We see both of these aspects in the dialogue Jesus has with us in this Sunday's Gospel. First, He talks to us about the conditions of discipleship, and then He speaks to us about the conditions of our apostolate. To be his disciple, Jesus says, to enter into his kingdom isn't easy. It requires a decisive choice. To do so, he tells us, we must love him more than father and mother, more than son or daughter. We must take up our cross and follow after him, losing our life for his sake in order to find it. Many people today don't recognize the seriousness or the cost of the call of Jesus. People in Jesus' own day had a similar problem. For centuries, they had anticipated that when the Messiah came, he would overwhelm all foreign powers, and they would ride his coattails to great triumph and riches. They were unprepared for the cost of discipleship, for the fact that to choose Jesus might involve familial opposition, not to mention the cross, suffering, struggle, and martyrdom. In terms of family relations, Jesus says that we can only have one absolute in our life. Only one love can have primacy. Only one thing can have our ultimate obedience and affection. Either God or our parents, spouse, other children, boss, heroes, etc. The same God who calls us to honor our father and mother, calls us to reverence our spouse out of love for him, who calls us to love our children as God has loved us first, at the same time calls us to love him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. When we choose to love God above all, we do not love our family members less, but better. Many times we won't have to choose between the love of God and the love of family members. But when faced with that choice, Jesus is saying God must come first. This choice sadly comes up sometimes and we all need to be ready for it. I was in seminary. Many of my classmates were there over the opposition of their family members who didn't want them to become priests because sadly they prioritized having children carrying on the family name than they did having priest sons who could baptize people in the Lord's name. I'm a spiritual director to many religious women, and many of them, too, have not received encouragement from their families, but opposition, who tell these young, beautiful women that they're throwing their lives away when they give them to Jesus. A few weeks ago, a priest friend of mine died, Father John J. Hughes, a famous convert who was a priest to the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I wrote a tribute to him in the National Catholic Register this week. Father Hughes's father and grandfather were well-known, influential Episcopal priests in Newport, Rhode Island, and St. John the Divine Cathedral in New York. Father Jay himself had become an Episcopal priest, but eventually he realized God was calling him to be a Catholic. His dad told him that if he 
quote, perverted to Rome, he would never be welcome again in the family home. Father Hughes knew, however, that that was where God was calling him. And he left the Episcopal clergy in 1960 to be received into the church, and he was ordained a Catholic priest eight years later. His father never spoke to him again. It was very hard, but Father Hughes chose Jesus. Sometimes to have that pearl of great price, we have to sell all our other pearls. But ultimately, we do so when God is God. Even though it's hard, it's rewarding. Elsewhere in the Gospel, St. Peter asked Jesus what the apostles would receive for leaving father and mother, children and lands for his sake, in the sake of the Gospel. Jesus replied, a hundredfold in this life, in eternal life. And those who have made these sacrifices know that the reward is greater than the cost, even though the cost is high. Father Hughes said that becoming a Catholic was the most difficult decision he ever made, but also the best. And he spent his life in thanksgiving to God for the graces received, especially each morning at the altar. Jesus is worth it. To follow him does sometimes require crucifixion to worldly ways, but it also involves resurrection. In the second part of the gospel, Jesus speaks to us about the importance of the apostolate. It's part of Jesus' instructions to the apostles before he sends them out for the first time to preach. And he describes the welcome that others will give or refuse to give as a sacrament of their welcoming God or not. Jesus tells us, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive the reward of a prophet. Whoever receives a holy man because he's holy will receive a holy man's reward. Whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because he's a disciple, amen, I say to you, will surely not lose his reward. Jesus sends us out in his name so that others have a chance in welcoming us to welcome him so that in caring for us, they might care for him. Sometimes we think to be successful in the apostolate, we have to have knowledge of sacred scripture like St. Paul, preaching ability like Fulton J. Sheen, loving charisma like Teresa of Calcutta, and missionary zeal like St. John Paul II. But sometimes it involves just going out in the name of Christ and allowing others to welcome us in his name. That very act of welcoming is more than one of basic human hospitality. It's often one of faith, hope, and love. It's also why one of the most important habits we need to cultivate in ourselves and form on our children is this habit of welcoming. Because in welcoming others, including strangers, not to mention in welcoming those sent out by the church in Jesus' name, we're welcoming the Lord who has sent them as his emissaries. He who tells us, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Often we don't have to build huge cathedrals to God's glory to please him. We just need to give a cup of cold water to someone in his name and to go out and allow someone to give us that cup of cold water. Jesus who said, I was thirsty and he gave me drink, promises that those who give will be rewarded. So in the conversation this Sunday, Jesus wants to strengthen us to choose him who has first chosen us in love, the one who loved us more than he loved his own life, who picked up his cross and lost his life so that we might have life to the full. He wants to help us welcome him who came into this world to welcome us into his kingdom here and forever. He wants to embolden us as he sends us out like he sent the original 12, promising that others who welcome us because we're his disciples will receive an unbelievable reward, the reward of the great apostles and prophets and saints. Let us listen to Jesus this Sunday with that in mind. Welcome his words on good and fruitful soil. Choose him with preferential love and commit ourselves anew to spread that love of him. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com 
And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. Thank you.